0: Welcome to the Faith and Mental Health Podcast. My name is Kelsey Newsom. I work as a macro social worker in West Michigan.
1: And I'm Bruce Vendrager. I work as executive director of pastoral services for an organization in West Michigan called Hope Network. Together, we are the hosts of the Faith and Mental Health Podcast.
0: This podcast is hosted by Bearing Hope, a collaborative group made up of the Christian Reformed Church in North America, the Reformed Church in America, Hope Network, Pine Rest Christian Mental Health Services, and the Mental Health Foundation of West Michigan, Be Nice. We believe, particularly now, it is vital to begin conversations about mental health and faith. Together, we will explore questions and topics about leadership while also maintaining mental health, leading others who are new to understanding mental health, parenting through mental health, and so much more. We are concerned about thoughtfulness around mental health as it relates to all aspects of life and faith.
1: Welcome to the Faith and Mental Health Podcast.
0: So the theme of this episode is grief as it pertains to faith, mental health, grief also as it pertains to the last 11 months of our lives. 2020 was hard for a lot of people. A lot of people are grieving people that they've lost. People are grieving ideas, hopes, all sorts of the the intangible griefs as well. So... Bob, first, let's have you introduce yourself. Um, who are you? What are you up to these days? What does life look like for you?
2: Hi, I'm Bob Vandipaul. Um, I direct the Employee Assistance Program and Church Assistance Program for Pine Rest Christian Mental Health Services. Um, we are swamped. Um, mental health issues, family issues, um, addictions, relapse issues, all of those things are um, at a, a level of tension... Um, that we haven't seen for a while. And as we serve churches and workplaces, we have to think about that not only in terms of the individual, but also systemically. Wow, what's it like for this work team to come back when you have such polarized views of reality and people are on edge and tend to be more defensive and sometimes offensive than they were otherwise. And some people fight, some people take flight, some people freeze when they're afraid, none of which contributes to a very healthy milieu for workplace or a church. We're busy.
0: So as we were chatting before we officially started recording here, we talked about some of the different Um, systems for talking about grief, the different terminology that we use, the phases that we move through. Can you talk about what you find helpful, what you find unhelpful about the different either stages of grief or just the way that we name our grief in general?
2: Okay, sure. Um, You know, it's kind of like when you see one grief, you've seen one grief
1: Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) because it's different for everybody. Yes, there are commonalities and yes, there are themes but any time that someone who's experienced a really significant loss feels pigeonholed, oh, I know just how you feel. Oh, you're this. Oh, this. It's not helpful. It's not helpful at all. Um, one of the frameworks that's been most common specific to grief has been Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief. And it's, it's really interesting how um, people have grasped onto that model when um, Kubler-Ross first posed it, she was working with folks in end-of-life situations, and she identified those five stages, you know, the, the denial, the anger, the bargaining, the depression, and the acceptance. She identified those for those who were facing their own impending death and then kind of noted, hmm. There's a lot of similarities to how people grieve their own demise, with how people grieve the loss of a loved one. But it was really just more written from her own professional experience, and I think she's really uh, was smart and um, had a lot of great points. But there was not a lot of gold standard research behind that. If if today you Google stages of grief, you will find four stages, five stages, six stages, nine stages, 12 stages, and all of them hold elements of truth. And in some ways, they're just repackaged, reformatted, sliced and diced a little bit differently. So sometimes people find that kind of information to be really helpful. Ooh, it normalizes me. Yeah, that's, ooh, I did feel that. And it provides some grounding that can be helpful. And for other people, it's really frustrating and unhelpful because they feel like, oh, I'm supposed to be in this stage for 17 days, this one for two months, this one for this. And it's a bowl of spaghetti. It's all through each other when you're grieving and the elements are present, but not necessarily in order.
0: What have you found to be different or what have you found to be the same about people's grief process? in the last year or so. So I'm thinking specifically of people I know who have lost a loved one and couldn't Mm -hmm. hold a funeral or it's on pause until things calm down. So what, what does that look like through your experience, through your eyes?
2: You know, it's been really hard because, um, one of the things that helps us to stabilize when our world is shaken is to go to something familiar, Mm -hmm. is to go to something familiar. And, um, You know, my faith is really, really, really important to me and nothing is more familiar than a God who's been here forever and will be here forever. That's pretty familiar. That's stable. Um, But we we also find it through dealing with things the way that we're used to dealing with things. And so, yes, when someone that we love is dying, we all want to be in the room Mm -hmm. and for them to die you know, painlessly with dignity and us singing amazing grace around them, right? That's how we want it to be. In the middle of COVID, that hasn't been the case very often. And then we have rituals for how we move forward. We gather with loved ones and we, you know, we recall memories and we go to Rituals and familiar practices for how you're supposed to grieve people. You're supposed to go stand in this long line and shake hands and say, my condolences. And you're supposed to do that. And then you're supposed to have ham buns in the church basement afterwards, right? And it's so we have rituals and you go to the cemetery all together and we haven't been able to do that. And so it feels incomplete for many people. There have been funerals held on the front porch, you know, um, with very limited people and wearing masks. That's all so foreign. So there's not only grief at the loss of the person, but there's a grief because we also lost how we lose people. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's grief on grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's been difficult. It's, it's been difficult also for those who care for the grieving. It's been difficult for, for pastors Um, for other faith leaders, because this is what I know how to do. And this has been helpful to so many people in the past. And I feel like I went out to the job site and I don't have any tools (laughs) because the things I usually use aren't available to me or don't fit. So it's been very stressful for people who've lost, as well as for those
1: who, uh, who minister to them. And I think Bob, one of the elements as a as a pastor um, speaking from experience is that you know in those situations of funerals and and the visitations and maybe the time leading up to and through um, through that process is it's an emotionally draining experience um, okay. if you are you know well connected with your congregation, the people you serve, and then you add to it the energy it takes to reinvent the way that you do these rituals, whether it's with technology, which can be a challenge to some, or just, you know, um, like you said, standing on a porch and doing a funeral, but it takes that extra bit of energy that is already probably kind of low because of the emotional energy that's spent through the, you know, through the process. Um, It does present extra challenges, I, I think, for pastors at times like this. I think it'd be hard for pastors, too, because, you know, anytime it's personal,
2: it's harder than professional. Right. And as a pastor, you wear so many hats. And not only do you have a professional relationship with these people, but they may be people that are your friends or your spouse's friends or your kid's best friends or, you know, they may have coached your kid in Little League.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: Mm-hmm. And all of that. And that really blurs things. So not only are you reaching out to others in a unique way that has to pour into them, but you're grieving too. You're grieving too. And, and to whom do you go for support? Um, who ministers to the minister in those scenarios?
0: Naming this tension is the first huge hurdle in this process. So I think there's a lot of good um, healing energy behind that. But what's next? Like, what do we do once we've named the fact that things are different and they're hard and even the people caring for people are struggling? Do you have any words of wisdom or success stories that you could share?
2: You know, um, much of my career has been in the area of crisis response. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is a crisis. (laughs) This is a crisis. It is. And it carries, whether it was um, a traumatic loss or even when it's ongoing and you know the death is impending, even when it finally happens, there's still a shock to the system. And Kelsey, you just talked about naming it. um, Crisis communication always begins with acknowledge And it's really tempting to not want to deal with things and use the real words and to call it what it is. And that's not helpful. (laughs) And if for an ongoing ministry relationship, um, you need to maintain, establish, build trust. And I don't know about you, but if I have a leader who denies, minimizes, sweeps under the rug, something troubling that we all know is there, I don't trust that person anymore. Mm -hmm. Either they're not strong enough to handle it or they don't have the character to really deal with it. And so that's really important. And I think a piece of it is um, acknowledging how awkward it is. (laughs) Acknowledging how awkward it is. I am so sorry for your loss and I am so sorry that we can't, say goodbye in the way that's familiar. Um, And then I think a grief maxim kicks in. You know, so often um, you will see families who will split after a death because they had different grief styles. I've seen statistics that said that when Marriages lose a child to death. They divorce about 90% of the time Mm. because of how difficult it is. And I think a lot of it is because people have different styles of how they grieve. So whether it's a marriage or a family or a congregation, people kind of get caught into, do we grieve or do we move forward? And there will be people who will very much want to stop and lament and feel And talk about it. And for them, perhaps moving forward feels disrespectful. How can we move forward? How can we laugh? How can we go back to life when we lost somebody? And there are other people who take a very different approach they don't want to grieve. They want to move forward and that's therapeutic for them. And so maybe it's, you know, covering their eyes and sprinting out of there, but they don't want to face that pain. And the way they deal with it is to go back to their email, go back to their job, go back to doing what they did, maybe go break something cheap, you know, Mm. and that's how they deal with it. Look what that can do to a marriage. Look what that can do to a family when you know, the matriarch or patriarch of the family dies and people grieve differently. Pastors are in a really difficult pivot point right there and accommodating everyone's style in a way that keeps unity within that family or that congregation. That's a hard one. Mm-hmm. So acknowledge, communicate, share what you know for sure, and help people to move forward. So do we grieve or do we move forward? yes. We go forward. Sadly, we go forward. Sadly, we acknowledge it fully, but we don't stay there to wallow. Worst case scenario. And we go forward, but we don't sprint it to avoid. We go forward. Sadly, easier said than done.
0: Right, (laughs) right. And I'm thinking of conversations, I'm guilty of this too, but where we look at the way other people are grieving, and even if they are grieving the same thing we are grieving, and we use the word right. Are they grieving the right way? Are they doing this right? And I think what I'm hearing you say is there's no such thing as right when it comes to grief. Are you doing it? That's the right answer.
2: Yeah, there are godly ways and ungodly ways. There are healthy ways and unhealthy ways, but there's a lot of grace, a lot of latitude and all the healthy ways to move forward. Right. Yeah. And then there's also the timetables that people are, you know, um, hey, it's been a month. You should be over this by now. (laughs) No, no. This person was so important to me, so important to me such a big part of my identity, perhaps, you know, and to have that torn from me.
1: um, When will I stop grieving?
2: The day that I pass too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Grief is grief is um, you know, sometimes I've called it, it's a journey um, that never ends. um, And that it both in my own personal experience of grief with, you know, loved ones who I've lost and, pastoring to those who have are going through that it's you know it's so unexpected too, the way that it can hit you uh, I mean I can go months without thinking about my father who I lost two years ago and then something um, driving down the road will trigger it and it just it sort of overwhelms you like a flood for a moment or you know for a period of time um, so yeah like you said Bob um, when does it end it ends at your own you know at your own death. Yeah. It's the
2: cost we pay for love, and it's a bargain. Mm-hmm. But doesn't feel like it. Yeah. There's a lot of research, too, about when people go through the normal, predictable reactions to whether it's a traumatic event, a grief, or a loss, how they now make sense out of their reaction to it is very predictive to whether they're going to come through this well or not. So if people judge themselves harshly for crying, for not Mm -hmm. being able to sleep, for not being able to concentrate, for isolating. And they really judge themselves, oh, how inferior, how frail, what a pathetic wimp I must be. Or if they move forward and they think, what an uncaring jerk I must be. <laughs> mm. But if they judge themselves harshly rather than acknowledging, okay, this is grief. These are normal, predictable reactions that people have as they go through this. Maybe I'm a normal person experiencing normal reactions and it's the event that is abnormal to me. Um, then people tend to move forward better. And when those around them can also offer grace, so there's not just one way to grieve, um, then that support is more helpful too.
0: Bob, I'm remembering conversations even um, when I was in my social work program about uncomplicated bereavement and when it's time to get help. So grief is tricky because it never feels good. Um, even when it's healthy. And so I think a lot of people struggle knowing when to reach out and when, they, when it's, it's crossed that line into something that's not healthy. Do you have any sort of guidance or wisdom to share with us there of, about how to know, you know the difference between leaning on your natural supports and when it's time to seek professional help?
2: Okay. Well, first, Kelsey, you began that question with a deep clinically significant sigh. So I'm just pointing that out. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think think probably the best source of when does somebody need help, that information is provided by those around them. (laughs) So if the people around them who care about them um, and have some good judgment say, you know, you haven't slept through the night and it's been a long time. Um, I notice a difference in your appetite I notice a difference significant difference in how much you cry I notice how you've pulled away and stayed there um, I've noticed you're drinking a lot more than you used to um, that those forms you know we all it's it's wonderful when we have somebody who tells us when we have spinach in our teeth
0: mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: and, You know, And that's a wonderful friend who says, I care enough about you to risk ticking you off. And here's an awkward conversation. Um, Hopefully, they're also the people who tell you you have a beautiful smile. But if they'll point that out, that's a real test of a friend. So is it inhibiting your life? Is it inhibiting your life in a way that you can't care for your regular responsibilities? If you can't work, if you can't take care of your kids, if whatever, whatever is in your, uh, your job description in life. Um, I think that's one of the big, biggest things. There's a, there's a fine line between, you know, grief and depression. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's between grief and anxiety. You know, if the person left was really dependent functionally, socially on the person who died now, I'm scared stiff because, He always drove. He was the one who introduced us into all social situations. He did all the billing. I don't know anything about any of that stuff. He, you know, all that kind of stuff. And there are, um, clear definitions of what depression and anxiety are. Those would be good reasons to ask for help. Um, you know, you guys are in mental health and ministries also. So give a kid a hammer, the world becomes a nail, but, I don't know anybody who has a negative outcome from asking for help. Right. So if you had to default, go the route of asking for help. And if your clergy or your behavior health professional says, no, nah, you're doing fine. This is just grief. Okay. Whew, check that off my list.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. The challenge, of course, is, you know, we're we're proud people typically and to get to asking for help can be the, the real challenge for many people. Um, and so just some of the advice that you gave Bob about noticing that in others and being the one who says, Hey, I noticed there's something, you know, your, whatever your patterns are changing, your behaviors are changing, yeah. um, can be a, a pretty important thing along the way uh, to, to helping somebody maybe admit that they do need some more help. Yeah, which says something for congregations to really knowing each other,
2: <laughs> mm. because then you know what the baseline is. You know, maybe somebody is always been shy. So then for them, pulling away is not a big red flag. But if you had somebody who is in the midst of committees and conversations in the narthex and all of that volunteering on a regular basis, and now they pull away, hmm, mm-hmm. I see something different. Mm hmm. Yeah. it means we need to have conversations that are deeper than just the weather and the fact that the lion's lost again. You know, we need to have real conversations so that we get to know each other better.
0: And I think it's worth going back to what you were saying right before I asked that question too, where it, we don't judge ourselves for this and we don't judge each other for this either. So just because we're saying like, Hey, I think you could use some extra help. We're saying that out of love and out of a place of caring and believing that help will be helpful that it will be healing um we're not saying that because we're shaming someone or telling them that they're not doing it well or enough or whatever that might be
2: right there are a lot of studies that talk about when people experience something tragic um it changes the worldview. how do they view me and my role in the world and what's around me and they find that one of the best predictors of that is not just the incident but it's how did people respond to them afterwards? And so if I my worldview now shifts to, whoa, the world is a dangerous place and people don't give a rip, that's a less healthy place than, who. the world can be a dangerous place, a hard place. But look at all the people who came around me. Mm-hmm. And there are studies about what happens when a recognize leader responds or not, as well as the community around. And so that's a tremendous challenge. And as, as supporters, oftentimes we duck those conversations because we're uncomfortable with emotions, you know, so I know this is familiar to you, but people always say, wow, my spouse died and then nobody ever used their name anymore. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever talked about them anymore. They were this huge percentage of my life. And now it's like they've been scrubbed from everybody's memory. Um, and so it's so important to use the person's name to say, wow, so-and-so would have loved this, wouldn't they? Hey, wasn't this so-and-so's favorite song? Um, hey, how'd so-and-so respond when Tom Brady got to the Super Bowl again? You know, And just to be able to keep them alive and keep them moving forward so that they're not erased. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we need to have the courage to do that.
0: You're in a unique place professionally where you are offering a real and tangible resource to people, um, employers and pastors. So can you talk a little bit about what you and Pine Rest are offering and also keeping in mind listeners who might not be in West Michigan, so might not be able to use this exact resource, but just the kind of like, the category of resources that are out there?
2: Oh, yes, they can. We serve some denominations uh, from sea to shining sea. but. Yeah, so we serve churches in a number of ways. Um, some churches have an employee assistance program, and so all of their clergy, as well as their households, have access to some pretty uh, pretty cool resources. They have a hotline that they can call twenty four seven, and I just need to talk to a counselor. Um, they have uh, we have different models, but three to five or more free. Counseling sessions, which are being delivered through telehealth during COVID, um, but ideally in office settings. And then we offer some things that take um, just take some stress off their plates to elder care consultation and legal consultation, financial consultation, a lot of trainings and critical incident response. So sometimes we serve churches and this is available for the staff. OK, um, some churches sign up and we cover all of their congregants. So if anyone calls and says, hi, I'm a member of LMNOP Church. Um, I'd like to use my CAP benefits. Bingo, they get that free. And that's designed to add some clinical expertise to the pastoral staff, as well as take something off, you know, provide some bench strength. Um, we had a, a really unique request just recently where a classes contacted us and said, this has been a uniquely stressful time for our boards, their councils, whatever churches call them. Could we just engage this product for everyone who's a member of our board and their families? Because they're having to deal with, you know, they can't go to the grocery store without somebody saying, how come we have to wear masks? Or how come someone so didn't wear a mask? And they're really stressed. And so we offered it to them. And so they will have access to those same resources as well. And we're just also available at any time for what it's worth to put another head together and say, what do you think about this situation? And if we can be helpful, we'd love to.
1: And you can find more information about those programs and other services that Pine Rest offers at their website. Yes. Which is pinerest.com
2: dot org uh, dot org, dot org. Yep. and um there's a tab to hit for services and you'll see eap and cap and uh the, the descriptions
1: are there wonderful thank you bob we appreciate your time i think uh we're past that half hour mark um so that should give us more than enough kelsey you have any more questions at all that you
0: um Nothing specific. I think maybe just like a question as we're winding down. Do you have any sort of parting wisdom for us or for keeping in mind the, the listeners that we're aiming to reach are pastors, faith leaders, um, volunteers in faith settings?
2: You know, I've been doing a lot of presentations recently on um, post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. So when an awful event happens, some people remain victims Some people quickly rebound to become survivors. And I made up a word. Some people grow and we call them (laughs) surthrivers. And there are characteristics of those who do. That's a whole nother workshop. But one of the questions that I've asked everybody in these virtual trainings is, Okay, during 2020, what have you lost? What are your losses? What are your griefs? And nobody yet has identified stuff. It's been people that they lost. It's been family gatherings that they've lost. It's been kids' events that they've lost. Um, And it's all been relational, and it's all been related to creating memories with people you care about. I hope we write that down, and when we come out on the other side, that's what we value most. So good. That's great, that's great. Thanks,
1: Bob. Thank you all. Good to see you both again. Yeah, yeah, likewise.